Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 26. Don't do it again, Matilda. Everyone attached to the Kana organisation, and plenty who weren't, got caught up in the contest as it drew nearer. I was reliably informed, well, I say reliably, it was Mike Asher who told me, that a book was being run and some substantial sums were being laid down on me and Charlie. That should have put me on my guard, knowing the footballers as I did. I noticed Fred Spikely and Jimmy Crabtree hanging back, rather, trying not to get involved, keeping their powder dry for young Mr Chaplin's sake, but I didn't think there was much they could really do to actually undermine me, not without losing their jobs, anyway. I actually looked forward to rubbing their noses in it once I took over as the new number one. Anyway, Billy Ragg was my man. After the large cast rehearsal was finished, the two of us started working on a piece of business, or stuff, as Billy called it. Obviously there wasn't much leeway to add to what was already there, but we were able to come up with a couple of ideas to embellish the football action passages of the piece. In our best little sequence we worked it so that Billy would stop the ball and instantly brace his leg behind it so that I, as Stiffy, could throw myself full-bloodedly into a save, giving it everything. When we showed it off to the rest of the company later, the meaty slap of the two of us colliding made the other players wince and drew a smattering of spontaneous applause from those watching the rehearsal. I knew we had a winner. I had the Wednesday off, and was looking forward to meeting Tilly at the Fun Factory later that afternoon. I hadn't done anything more about the favour that Carno had asked of me, and I supposed I should grit my teeth and get on with it if I was going to. Clara Bell seemed to know as much about my neighbour as anyone, so I had in mind that a chat with her might be useful. I poked my head into the kitchen, where I found Clara warming her hands on a fresh pot of tea. Clara? Hello, Arthur, my lad. What are you about this fine morning? No rehearsals today? No, that's right, I said. Tea? Clara asked, her hand poised on the teapot handle, and I nodded and took a seat at the table while she fetched another cup. "'I wanted to ask you about the lady next door, Edith,' I said. "'Oh? How did she and the governor come to split?' I asked. Clara gave me such a piercing glance at this that I flushed bright red. "'I was only wondering,' I went on hurriedly, "'because she speaks of him so fondly, always wants news of him.' "'You're her friend, I know you are,' she said, after a moment or two, and I nodded keenly. I've heard her speak of how much she enjoys your little chats. The view she gets from Freddy, and I'm afraid from most of us, is rather jaundiced about her husband, you see, knowing what he is, and what he's done. That's why you are like a breath of fresh air to her, worshipping him the way she does, the way you do. I do? Oh, of course you do, you silly boy, it's perfectly plain. And I don't know if it's really my place to bring you down to earth. Perhaps it's better if you don't know. Don't know what? Tell me. Clara took a sip of her tea and then decided to begin. And once she began, there was no stopping her. It was not a happy marriage. She was 17 when they met, working in the box office at the Theatre Royal in Stockport. He was a gymnast with his act, the Three Carnos, and he set his cap at her right away. Her parents, though, didn't like him, and thought Edith was too young to marry, so they eloped. Very romantic. But he treated her as a slave all along, right from the first. 
She'd sell tickets for his shows, then be in his shows, and then scrub the stage once his shows were finished while he and everyone else was in the pub. She was still a child, and he was a bully, that's all. She was like a piece of property to him. Clara paused, took another sip of tea. What he started to do, you see, eventually, was say she had to be nice to a particular theatre manager so that they'd get more bookings, and so she would be, to please him, but then he would get it into his head that she must have gone as far as his filthy mind imagined she would, and he would fly into a jealous rage. He'd beat her black and blue, time and again. He brought a doctor to her once, and when he saw her, the doctor threatened to horsewhip him on the spot. That's how bad it was. She has a scar, just here on her cheek. Have you seen it? I shook my head. I had, though. She covers it well, but she'll have it till the day she dies, like a little crescent moon. He did that to her, threw her to the ground and stamped on her face with his heel. The image of Carno's smart, shiny little shoes flashed into my mind. She stayed with him, though, Clara went on. There were the children, of course, but she adored him, still, despite it all, if you can believe that. There was Freddy, the eldest, you know him, and Leslie, too. In between, there were six more that... Well, they just weren't meant to be, poor little scraps. And when each one died, he'd beat her again like it was her fault. Clara took a moment to compose herself. It wasn't just the beatings, though they were bad enough. It was the mistresses, too. When little Leslie was born, what is he now, seven? The brute had set up a second home on the very same street with that... woman. Maria, one of his Amazonian chorus girls she was then. We all knew about it. Everybody did, except poor Edith, and we hadn't the heart to tell her. Introducing her as Mrs Carno to everyone he was, it was disgraceful, with his real wife still recovering from the birth of his own child. Well, one day he decided he'd let Edith know that he had a mistress now, and one who would do things that she wouldn't do, wouldn't dream of doing. So he delivered a packet of photographs. Oh, such things they were. The two of them, naked as the day they were born, in a field, if you please, cavorting around, posing, doing, well, anything you could possibly imagine, and then worse... You don't mean, I do mean. Well, Edith could hardly turn a blind eye any more then, could she? When she left him, finally, she came to us, you know, and we took her in. Charlie went and told Carno straight that Edith was under his protection now, and we got her and little Leslie a room next door. Carno was furious, but he couldn't fire Charlie. Too many people would have had something to say about that, and Charlie would never leave. But he's never got the leads he deserved, Charlie, because of it. Been a number two for, ooh, ten years now. So why did they never divorce, Edith and the Governor, I asked. Edith went to a solicitor at the Variety Artists Federation, who said to her that she should seek a separation, not a divorce, as that way Carno would have to support her while she raised his sons. He fought her in court, though, and was winning his case, spinning his ridiculous sob story until I brought those photographs into the judge. Edith would never have done it, but I knew where she kept them, and I wasn't going to let him get away with it. The judge allowed that they should be separated and determined that Freddy should be left with his father for some reason I couldn't fathom then, still cannot now. Something to do with the chance of one day being brought into the family business. It's a miracle that boy has turned out as well as he has, a perfect miracle. I was finding it harder with every passing minute to imagine that I would ever be able to oblige Carno with his request. Does she ever... I mean, has she been alone since she and the governor separated? Or have there been... Good heavens, what sort of a question is that? "'I'm sorry,' I said, flustered. "'Of course not,' is your answer. "'She's a saint, that woman. A saint. "'She'd no more break her marriage vows "'than she'd cut off her own right hand. "'The very idea!' "'I see. "'She has two satin pillows on her bed to this very day, "'one with Edith embroidered on it "'and the other with Fred. "'I do believe she'd take him back even now.' "'I must have looked pretty crestfallen, for she said, "'There now, that was more than you wanted to know, wasn't it? 
He's not a bad man to be working for, I dare say, if you can manage to stay on the right side of him. And it's not really any of our business now, is it? More tea? I didn't need tea. I needed the open air. I needed to think. I grabbed my hat and strode out to the common. Clearly, what the governor had asked me to do was beyond the pale, and equally clearly, the man I had idolised since I came to London had feet of clay. In fact, was little short of monstrous. Nonetheless, the tantalising vision of a near future in which I was the lead comic of a Carnot company of which Tilly was a member, well, could I really pass that up? I could find somewhere else to live, far from Streatham and the protective Charlie Bell. I could find a way of avoiding Freddie Jr. for the next, well, for the rest of my life, couldn't I? Tilly was doing her bit that very afternoon. I reckoned if I was going to go through with this, then I really should do it as soon as possible. I wasn't sure how far I actually had to go before the weekend and Carno's big decision. Perhaps I would be able to make him see that his scheme was madness. Perhaps the attempt itself would be enough to show him that in fact he was in the wrong. The one thing I couldn't get away with doing was nothing at all. I decided that I should bring some flowers if I was really going to pitch woo, as Charlie would no doubt have called it, to a married lady. Whether I actually thought that flowers would make a difference, or I was just postponing the moment again, I can't now quite recall. Whichever it was, I found myself browsing at a florist's barrow at the bottom end of the common for some considerable time. "'If you wait until they turn, they'll be cheaper. Is that what you're thinking?' the crone in charge eventually inquired. I laughed off her sledgehammer sarcasm. "'No, no, I beg your pardon. I just wanted to be sure I get it right. Difficult choice,' I said. "'Courting, are you?' she said. "'Here, let me help you out, Sonny.' She quickly gathered a two-bob bouquet together for me and thrust it into my arms. "'Never a woman born yet that wouldn't swoon at the sight of that little lot!' I thanked her, paid her, and was turning to leave, when she called me back and stuck something into the lapel of my jacket. "'Lucky Heather!' she whispered. "'Thanks,' I said. "'I've got a feeling I'll need it.' A few minutes later, I stood by the gate of next door's house. Actually, maybe it was longer. I may have walked around the block a couple of times and nipped into a pub for a stiffener. Anyway, I stopped there, at the gate, and took a deep breath. I just about felt like I'd screwed my courage to the old sticking place when a voice hailed me from across the street. "'What ho, Arthur!' I turned, and there was young Freddy, striding towards me with a big grin on his silly chops, just the very last person I wanted to see. He spotted the flowers clutched in my fist, of course, right away, and punched me jovially on the arm. "'Flowers, eh? Who's the lucky gal?' <laughs> "'No one, no one,' I said. "'Oh!' Have you got a secret admirer yourself, then? Some fella sweet on you, is it? Don't be an ass, Freddy. I'm just going to see Mama. Are you going out, or do you want to come in and say hello? I'm, um... It's all right, you can if you want. I'm sure she'll like to see you. I'm just killing time while Maria's out shopping, he said cryptically. What? I said, and he laughed. Maria's out shopping. That's just what I call it. She goes up to town for the afternoon, looking at shoes and so on, deciding she'll maybe get them next time or the time after. And while she's out, that's when Dad does his auditioning. He doesn't call it the fun factory for nothing, you know. Sorry, what, I said. Come along, Arthur, you're not usually this dim. The governor is auditioning a young lady, and he does it when Maria is out shopping because she's an extremely jealous woman and he doesn't want her to know what he's about. The truth was dawning on me slowly now, although I didn't want it to. Likes to see just how super the supers really are, if you follow me. I nodded, but was barely listening. In my mind I was hearing Tilly's voice reciting her letter. I've got an audition with Fred Carno himself, no less, next Wednesday in the afternoon at his house while his wife is out at the shops, so fingers crossed for me, eh? Freddie was still talking. I walked in on him once, not long back, auditioning, and got a pound pay rise so I wouldn't tell Maria. Ha! 
I'd tell you who the girl with it was, but it wouldn't really be fair, would it? I see her on pay night. Think it's her, anyway. I only got the briefest look at her face, to be honest. Hey, <laughs> you with me? <laughs> I laughed along with him, hollowly, my mind racing. In fact, sometimes I amuse myself on a Saturday night by ticking him off in my head. She's been govved. She's been govved. I saw her being govved. Govved twice, to my certain knowledge. Govved, 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 and so on. <laughs> I should put a little G next to their names in the ledger, shouldn't I? Baffle future generations of accountants. His bawdy grin turned to a look of concern as he saw my expression. I say, are you all right, Arthur? You look rather pale. Here, I said, slamming the bunch of flowers into his chest. Give these to your mother. I set off at a run down the street. Too agitated to wait for a tram or an omnibus, I ran up Streatham High Road towards Brixton. Got passed by a tram, which would have got me there sooner if only I could have calmed down to wait for it. Cursing, ran on up the hill. Lost a scarf, it blew off from round my neck. I didn't go back for it. Up to Colt Harbour Lane, red in the face, panting, sweating, into Vaughan Road, seeing the fun factory lit up by the winter sunshine, seeing Carno's house. Stopped, gasping, leaning on somebody's garden wall, trying to get my breath back. The door of Carno's house opened, and Tilly stepped out. She was smiling, and gave a little wave back to the occupant as the door closed. She set off walking along the street towards me, saw me, smiled. Carno's face leering down at her. Hello there, you, she said as she got close. Carno, unbuckling his belt. Guess what? she asked brightly. Carno, giving a little cough. I passed the audition, she beamed. Carno's lips leaving a wet smear on her cheek. Didn't you hear me? I got a job. Tilly's face changed. I saw her read in my eyes that I knew perfectly well what her audition had consisted of. She said in a small voice, It was for you, Arthur, so I could be with you. But I didn't hear her. All I could think of was her being govved. Leave me alone, I said. You disgust me. She walked away, of course. Her head bowed, one hand over her face, not a sound. She walked away from me to the end of the road, turned the corner and disappeared from view. I didn't know what to do with myself. I sat on the pavement, rested my head on my knees, closed my eyes. It began to rain, a sudden heavy shower. Within a couple of minutes I was soaked through to the skin, but I couldn't bring myself to get up. After a few minutes I heard a front door bang and glanced up. There was Carno, strutting across the road to the fun factory under a bright red umbrella, exceedingly full of himself, clip-clopping lightly round the puddles in his shiny little shoes. I wondered if they were the same shoes he'd used to stamp on his wife's face to scar her for life. It made me think of the other people he wasn't worried about scarring for life. Me, for one. I felt a volcanic anger building up inside me. I scrambled to my feet and followed. He'd just started talking to Alf Reeves about some theatre plans of some sort when I kicked the door of his office open. I stood there in the entrance like a drowned rat. He got half the way up to his feet and opened his mouth to speak, but I beat him to it. You... I shouted. You're a monster! Are you drunk? Carno said calmly. Not yet, I roared. I grabbed his bottle of scotch from atop his cabinet and took a big spluttering swig from it. What's this about? I'll tell you, I cried. It's about me telling you where to stick your stupid contest and where to stick your bloody job. Carno's jaw dropped. You what? he said. You heard me, I snarled, pushing my face right up to his, nose to nose. Stick it where the sun doesn't shine, because if the only way to keep it is to compromise your poor wife, well then it's clearly not a job worth having, and I'll find some other bloody thing to do. I had no idea what that other thing might be, and to be honest that big swig of whisky was beginning to make me feel dizzy, but I was rather enjoying myself. The smoke in my nostrils from all the bridge burning I was doing had an exhilarating tang. 
Do I take it that you're resigning from the company? Carno shouted, trembling with fury. You can take it up your ass! I roared, rocking back on my heels. That poor woman still loves you, you know, even though you've got yourself another so-called wife and are betraying that one with any available trollop whenever her back is turned. Resignation accepted! Carno yelled, banging his fist on the table as if it contained a rubber stamp to make things official. Fine! I shouted, my face an inch from his. No! Another voice cut in. "'Strongly, firmly. "'Carno and I were stunned. "'We'd been so wrapped up in our fury "'that we'd almost forgotten Alf was still in the room. "'Yet there he was, red in the face "'and visibly quivering with suppressed rage. "'You what?' Carno said, "'slowly turning to face him, hands on hips. "'I said no,' Alf said with a dreadful calmness. "'No, Arthur is not resigning from the company, "'nor are you going to sack him. "'I won't allow it.' Ho, ho, ho! Carno bellowed nastily, turning an interesting puce colour. Is that so? Yes, Alf said, ice cold. That is so. Or do you want me to tell everyone what you asked this boy to do? You can do exactly as you damn well please, shouted Carno, but the wind was leaking from his sails. This is what is going to happen. You can play out your contest on Saturday, even though it is silly and demeaning to this lad and to young Chaplin, both of whom deserve better from you. He doesn't. I muttered, and then you may come to whatever decision you think proper at the end of the evening, but I shall be there too, and I will feel obliged to see that no travesty of justice is done. Do you understand me, Fred? Carno glared at Alf for a moment, but Alf held his gaze. Fred, he said again, with steel in his tone, do you hear me? Very well, Carno said through gritted teeth, after a long, long moment in which he seemed to be weighing up Alf in his mind, reappraising him. Very well, then. "'But I shall stop the money for that door out of his wages,' he turned to Alf with exaggerated deference, "'unless you think that would be inappropriate.' "'No, that will be perfectly acceptable,' Alf said, holding himself erect. "'Now come along, Arthur. Time we left, I think.' I let Alf guide me out of the office and out into the wet street. I was astonished. "'What on earth did you think you were doing?' I shouted. Once we were clear of the fun factory, Alf's superhuman composure suddenly deserted him. He grabbed at his heart and leaned heavily against a lamppost. "'Saving your life, you young fool,' he gasped. "'Now get me a bloody brandy!' Chapter 27. Break a Leg So we come to that most peculiar of days at the Oxford, when Charlie Chaplin and I went head to head. The Oxford, gone now, pulled down and replaced with a lion's corner house, had the reputation then of being the handsomest music hall in London. It was certainly one of the most prestigious places to play. George Roby made his name there in the 1890s, you know, and it was always a favourite of his. I was there in plenty of time for the matinee, even though I wasn't to be in it, or even allowed to watch it. Once or twice a couple of strangers popped their heads in at the door and stared curiously at me before whispering to one another as if to say, There he is. He's one of them. At some point during the first half, the football match was in the second, Chaplin came to pay me a visit, all dressed up in Stiffy the goalkeeper's roll-neck jumper and long pantaloons, and shut the dressing-room door behind himself. Listen, Arthur, he began, shuffling from one foot to the other. It's embarrassing, this, isn't it, to be set against each other like this? I shrugged. You know, it's not really how it should be, is it? 
I shrugged again. But seeing as we are rivals as such, I didn't want there to be any bad feeling between us. I raised a quizzical eyebrow. So I wanted to apologise, you know, for Paris. I should have told you when I recognised Tilly, even though she asked me not to. I don't know why. It's none of my business. But I should have told you. Yes, I said, you should have. There was a pause. And, he ventured, I suppose I shouldn't have then begun to court her behind your back. That was not really on, was it? No, I agreed. It wasn't. So I just wanted to say that I'm sorry for what happened. Friends? Charlie stood there, offering his olive branch of a handshake, and I let him for a moment or two before finally nodding and taking his hand. Left to my own company, I fell once more into the black musings which had occupied my mind over the previous few days. Tilly, the girl of my dreams, the girl I had been desperately seeking for a whole year, had thrown up her new life in Paris and returned to find me, me, and I had rejected her. And try as I might to envisage ways of making that right, I still couldn't shake the mental picture of Carno auditioning her. Maybe I would have to leave the Carno organisation and make my own way as a solo, daunting though that prospect was. I remembered Stan's recent travails as he of the funny ways, and how glad he was to have joined the security and sheer creative enterprise of Carno's fun factory, and my heart sank into my boots. There was Wal Pink, of course, but who knew what he was up to? Suddenly, there he was, in the doorway. Yes, Wal Pink, large as life, as if I'd conjured him up simply by thinking about him. "'What the hell are you doing here?' I said." "'I've come to see your contest, of course, Arthur,' he oiled. "'At the Water Rats' dinner last night, everyone was talking about it.' "'So you've not yet brought the fun factory to its knees, then?' I asked. "'Give me time, my boy, give me time. "'Our plans march forward apace, and sooner rather than later we'll... Mm-hmm. "'Pink caught himself. "'Well, well, never mind what we'll do. "'I just wanted to be sure and let you know that my offer still stands "'whenever you wish to avail yourself of it.' "'Yes, well, if I do, you'll be the first to know,' I said. "'Now, if you don't mind.' "'Of course, of course. You need to ready yourself. Break a leg!' And he trotted off up the corridor as if he owned the place, just the sort of distraction I needed at that moment. Shortly I realised that Charlie's big moment was drawing nigh, because a tidal wave of studded boots clattered along the corridor as the Midnight Wanderers and the Middleton Pycans headed towards the stage. Then I heard the synchronised smashing of boots on the apron, which signified that the opening warm-up scene was underway, and I could make up some muffled laughter trickling down to the dressing room where I was still sitting. Some more laughter I judged to mark the entrance of Will Pulusky Jr. as the villain, and then it must surely be time for Stiffy to appear, and sure enough, yes, there was Chaplin's first big cheer. Long before the end of the sketch, I'd crawled into a costume hamper with my fingers in my ears, worn out with the stress of trying to read what I could hear of the audience's response. It seemed to my increasingly frantic imagination as though the whole act was running twice as long as before, maybe three times. I could only assume that was because of all the brilliant new sequences Chaplin had added, and my heart sank lower and lower as the blood pounded in my ears. After an eternity of torment, there was suddenly a blaze of light. I looked up to see Mike Asher in his referee's outfit, holding the lid of the hamper up and gazing down at me. "'There you are!' he cried. "'Whatever are you doing?' "'I lost my... um... "'Never mind,' I said." clambering out awkwardly. "'And with instinctive improvisational skills like that, how can he fail?' Mike crowed, and I punched him on the arm. "'Well,' I said, kicking the door to. "'How was it? How was he?' "'Young Mr. C? Oh, he was a revelation. Such panache, such finesse. He's still up there now, taking the audience's applause, even though the act finished a quarter of an hour ago and there are four synchronised unicyclists trying to form a pyramid behind... Ow!' He rubbed his arm where I'd thumped him again, looking faintly aggrieved. "'Really?' How was it? 
You really want to know? Of course. Mike shrugged. Yeah. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. It means it was all right, I suppose. Nothing special. Not quite as good as Weldon. Nowhere near as good as he thinks he is, but, well, how could he possibly be? Started well, but lost him in the middle, I'd say. I was fit to burst now. What do you mean, lost them in the middle? What happened? Well, it was rather peculiar, Mike said. He started in on this new bit of business he'd worked out with Fred Spikesley and Jimmy Crabtree. It was kind of a sentimental interlude, right in the middle of the biggest action bit. And I don't know if they messed it up or something, because the audience just seemed to get, well, a bit bored, really, and he never got them back. Afterwards, Charlie was furious, and Fred and Jimmy were trying to apologise, but Sid was just fending them off and shooing Charlie away. Who knows? Ha! I punched my fist into the palm of my other hand. He balls it up, in other words. Well, it wasn't bad. As I said, it was just... Yeah. Even though I hadn't seen it, I knew in a flash of inspiration what Charlie had done. He'd been faced with an audience desperate for entertainment, and he'd tried to give them art. Art with a capital A. Well, I thought, eh, that'll do me. Perhaps the game wasn't entirely up. Not yet. The bar at the Oxford was heaving with well-oiled Carno folk. It was the place to be that night, and no mistake. My old drinking pals, Bert Darnley and Chas Sewell, came over at once to wish me luck. The lads had seen Charlie's performance in the matinee and were rubbing their hands together with glee. "'It's an open goal, I'm telling you,' Bert crowed. "'It's true,' Chas insisted. "'Your odds on now, that's the word.' He nodded over to the far end of the bar where Fred Spikesley and Jimmy Crabtree were taking money hand over fist. They'd been running their book all week, but grumbling and moaning the while about how the odds on Charlie and me were so level that they would struggle to make a killing. Now, though, it appeared that everyone wanted to bet on me, and Fred and Jimmy were taking the bets on, I presumed out of loyalty to Charlie's cause and the fervent guilty hope that they hadn't helped to sink it. It occurred to me that I could really put the cat among the pigeons for them if I let on how much reason Carno had not to favour me. Billy Ragg saw me looking over the business they were doing and raised his pint to me in a cheery salute. Then Alf Reeves appeared at my elbow and guided me away to a quiet corner. "'Now then, Arthur,' he said. "'You're well prepared?' "'I am,' I said. "'Good,' Alf said, fixing me with a serious look. "'Now listen. You go out there and do your best. Don't go half-hearted, thinking the Governor won't give you a fair crack of the whip. He's a businessman, first and foremost, and if you show him you're the better bet, he'll pick you, never mind what passed between you. My word on it. All right?' "'Yes, Alf,' I said, feeling better every moment that passed. "'Thanks.' He nodded, patted me on the arm, went about his business, and George Roby, of all people, wandered over. "'Hail, fellow well met!' he boomed, as was his wont. "'George,' I said, shaking him by the hand, "'what are you doing here? "'I wouldn't miss this, my dear chap. "'Never been anything like it. "'Positively gladiatorial. "'Comedy as combat. "'Could be the next big thing.' "'I don't know about that,' I said. "'Yes, indeed. "'I'll tell you what you need. "'You need a fair damsel's favour to wear to the lists. "'That's right. "'Excuse me, my dear.' George waylaid a passing wench by placing his hand on her arm. "'I wonder if I might trouble you for a handkerchief?' he asked with exaggerated courtesy. She turned with a smile to give him what he asked for, and it was Tilly, of course. When she saw me, she flushed, and we stood speechless in front of one another as George twittered on innocently. "'Here you are, Sir Arthur,' he said, handing me the handkerchief. "'Tuck this about your person, and when you are victorious, as surely you must be, then you can claim the hand of the fair lady—' here he raised an inquisitive eyebrow— Matilda, Tilly murmured frostily. Lady Matilda, quite so, as your own. And you, my dear, must be sure to claim your prize. 
He ground to a halt, finally, seemingly unaware that the temperature in the vicinity had dropped a good few degrees, and let Tilly go, which she did with considerable dispatch, weaving away through the throng. George watched her appreciatively, and then gave me a hearty nudge. "'Pretty little thing,' he said. "'There, now, don't say I never do anything for you.' Rafe Luscombe was there, of course. My patron, as he insisted on calling himself, I'd written to him about the contest, and he couldn't keep away, despite the ongoing threat from his brother to send him to South America.' I have five pounds riding on you. Spikes is adamant that Charlie will still win, but I have every confidence. Every confidence, old chap. He paused to sip his drink, a dry sherry, and let his eyes roam around the busy bar. This really is the most tremendously exciting evening, he enthused. Look, there is Fred Kitchen, and Johnny Doyle, and George Roby, and Jimmy Russell. Oh, listen to me, you know all these fellows. Oh, good heavens, is that not Marie Lloyd? My, my... I began to feel oppressed by the weight of expectation pressing down on my shoulders. Time to leave, I thought. I need to go and get ready, I said to Luscombe, who winked conspiratorially. Of course, my dear fellow, no need to explain to me. I'm in the business, after all. Best of British! Later, I stood in the wings by myself as the football match got underway. I was nervous, yes, but confident, too. My chief concern was not about the act, which I knew was a banker. It was whether the power would be with me now when I needed it the most. The power, you see, was by its very nature a thing only partly under my control. The part of it that derived from my own skill and my own personality, well, that was up to me to deliver, but part of it depended on establishing a rapport with that particular audience on that particular night, and that always carried an element of the unknown, which is why, in short, so many comedians turned to drink. Will Pulaski was getting some nice laughs as the villain, more than he was used to since he had now incorporated some of Charlie's touches. And then there was my cue. On I strode, out into the lights, out where I belonged, and within half a minute I knew this was one of those nights when the power was oozing freely from my very fingertips. The audience positively lapped me up, and enjoyment ricocheted around the auditorium. This was going to be a good one. My first scene with Pulaski went like a dream. I could see a veritable ocean of happy faces beaming back at me. I picked off the moments neatly, not too showily, leaving something in the bank for later. The second scene, too, went breezily enough, and I knew the best was yet to come. Then it happened. A cry, clear as a bell, came from the stalls below me. Oi! Gowley! You stink! I was stunned at first. I could see the faces looking up at me, and picked out the speaker quite easily. He was looking me right in the eye, for one thing, a smug grin on his stupid face. For another clue, all the people around him had turned to look at him. I shall never forget that face... The man was large, and his features were ruddy and pockmarked. He was bald on top, and the back of his head was surrounded by a crazed halo of ginger hair. His nose was huge and swollen, and seemed to be divided into two distinct yet uneven lobes, so that there is no particularly delicate way to phrase this, so I'm just going to say it, so that it looked like nothing so much as a pair of testicles. My apprehension of this peculiar vision was the work of an instant, as the power was exercising its peculiar control over the seeming passage of time. What the power does, one of the ways in which it works, is it corrals an audience together, shapes it into one organism with one mind, and then you can take it with you wherever you wish to lead it. That one discordant voice shouting from the one and sixpennies shatters the fragile illusion. Suddenly it is not one audience in front of you, one single entity. Suddenly it is hundreds of different entities with hundreds of different faces, each of whom may have its own separate opinion. It's like trying to ride three horses at once, and all three want to go in different directions. The power, if it is with you, can retrieve this situation. You bend the audience to your will and mould them together once again. 
The solo act can address his tormentor directly and humiliate him or win him over, thus isolating him from the whole or absorbing him into it. For the team player, such as myself, on that night, it's trickier, but still feasible, and I set about it with a will. We continued, and shortly I felt it again, felt the power emanating from me, embracing the room, caressing it into submission. Laughter rolled in from the back of the stalls in waves, and I rode it like a bareback rider. Comfort, confidence, control, all returned. Then it came again. Oi, Gowley, you stink! I looked out into the stalls, and Mr Testicle-Nose had his arms crossed and was smirking triumphantly back at me. Those in the neighbouring seats were beginning to grumble at him, but he was unperturbed. Yet again I felt the reins yanked from my grasp, but gathered them up again. On I pressed, and the sketch was so reliably funny, and this fellow's opinion of my performance so unsupported by the public at large, that I soon had them again where I wanted them. There was an extra edge to the laughter now, as if people wanted to show this witless, gonad-faced rogue what it was to be lonely. I was building up now to the climactic part of the scene before the actual match itself begins. It was a nice moment, and required the timing to be just so. Sure enough... Right at the crucial split second, there was his rasping bellow. Oi! Gowley! You stink! The joke shattered in pieces at my feet, and so perfectly was it done that I found myself distracted by the sudden suspicion that a deliberate sabotage was being done, and a distraction like that, trust me, is instant death to comedy. Time seemed now to be speeding up for me where before it was supernaturally slowed, and I barely remembered that I was supposed to exit the stage so that Mike Asher as the referee could begin the cup final. I caught one last glimpse of testicle nose sneering at me, and for that moment I wanted nothing more than to just leap down into the stalls and smash his idiotic face in. To my intense gratification I then saw a right-thinking individual lean forward from behind the fool and cuff him really hard around the ear. This pleasant image revived my spirits as I waited in the wings, composing myself to embark upon the final scene, Stiffy the goalkeeper's finest hour, listening to Mike introducing the various players one by one. Each attracted a huge roar, and the atmosphere, as ever, was not so very far from that of a real football match. My heart was racing, and a muck sweat was trickling down my spine, but I comforted myself with the thought that from now on, Testicle Nose could shout whatever he liked, and nobody would be any the wiser. On I went, to an encouraging roar of my own, and the big match pantomime began to trundle along on its well-rehearsed way. I risked a single glance towards my enemy, but couldn't pick him out. Maybe someone had sat on him. Things were once again going well. All my thoughts now were of the special bit of business I'd worked out with Billy Rag. I'd tried nothing new so far, but this, if it came off, would draw gasps from the crowd, and I hoped, even Mr Carno himself. Here came the moment. The ball was loose in the centre of the apron. Billy would brace his leg behind the ball, and I would dive at his feet at full pelt. Every time we had practised this, there was a satisfying reaction from our colleagues, as there was a really meaty smack. It was a variation on rolling with a punch, really. A really hefty, seeming collision, but nobody got hurt. The power was with me again by this time, and I saw the whole thing in every detail. The ball. Billy's big tree trunk of a leg telescoping out. Myself, leaping, flying through the air. Billy's boot, not disappearing behind the ball, but rising up and over it. Myself, puzzled as I flew unstoppably towards him. Billy's boot with all his considerable weight behind it, crunching into my kneecap, with all my weight behind that. There was a gasp, all right. The collective intake of breath nearly brought the tabs down. I knew something was terribly wrong. A cloud of pain engulfed me, and the world seemed to grind to a halt. I looked up at Rag, 
a malicious gleam in his eye as he followed through. I could see the hair standing up on his great white ham of a thigh braced against my knee. Then I looked out into the stalls. Every face I could see had an appalled expression on it. Mouths were open, horrified hands were flying to eyes, blood was draining rapidly from features. I saw one woman gasp and then suddenly lurch forward, retching into her handkerchief. This wasn't good, not by a long chalk. I hadn't been in show business all that long, but even I knew that if your audience had started retching, then you'd probably lost them. Suddenly I wanted to retch myself, but somehow I gathered myself together, remembered where I was and what I was doing. I dragged myself up, how I don't know, with all my weight on my left leg, and I reached down behind and thumped my right leg back into line with a wet sort of crunch. Flashing lights twinkled madly at the edge of my vision, and I felt on the verge of fainting. As I'd thumped it, the knee had made a wet sort of crunching, squelching noise, but everything seemed to pop back roughly where it was meant to be, and gradually my head seemed to clear. Suddenly, stupidly, I began to believe everything was going to be all right. I tried, gamely, to step to my right, and the leg just buckled under me, sending me sprawling. I registered more horrified gasps from those close enough to see the detail of what was going on. I saw testicle nose mopping his freckled brow with a spotted kerchief, looked into his eyes, and then I passed out. Thank <laughs> you.